Welcome to Promiscuous Listening, where we take a cue from John Milton's 1644 tract, Areopagitica, and its promotion of reading promiscuously to learn from the diversity of voices in 21st century Milton studies. My name is Marissa Greenberg, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to my conversations with scholars about the works of John Milton, and especially his epic poem, Paradise Lost. Books seven and eight of John Milton's Paradise Lost present readers with knowledge of the creation and operations of the universe and humanity. This knowledge comes through the angel Raphael's narrative of the Hexameron and Adam's account of his and Eve's births. None of these neatly fit within Raphael's original mission, however. Go, God directs the angel in book five, converse with Adam, tell him with all his danger and from whom what enemy late fallen himself from heaven is plotting now the fall of others from like state of bliss. This mission is presumably fulfilled in books five and six when Raphael describes Satan's rebellion and the war in heaven and concludes with a blunt admonition against joining the ranks of the fallen. Book six ends with lines that seem to bring the angel's visit to a close. Let it profit thee to have heard by terrible example the reward of disobedience. Firm they might have stood, yet fell. Remember and fear to transgress. So why does Raphael stick around for two more books? The simple answer is because Adam asks. The more complex answer has to do with how humans learn in Milton's epic. Here to help us unpack this more complex answer is Dr. Mary Grace Elliott. Thank you, Dr. Elliott, for joining us today. Would you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, Mary Grace Elliott. I am a lecturer of English at Kennesaw State University. My research focuses on early modern grammar school education in Shakespeare and Milton. So I'm particularly interested in Raphael as a teacher. And that main question of why does he stick around for two more books, I think because Milton focuses so much on education, so much on learning and what knowledge is and how we acquire it and what we do with it. And the central four books of this epic are all about that. And I think we might start with one of these key passages about Mm -hmm. learning and about knowledge. And and it's in book seven, when Mm -hmm. acceding to Adam's request for more information about God in the world, Raphael talks about licit and illicit forms of knowledge. And here's what he says. Knowledge is as Mm -hmm. food and needs no less her temperance over appetite to know in measure what the mind may well contain, oppresses else with surfeit and soon turns wisdom to folly as nourishment to wind. Uh, in, In a story that pivots on food consumption and intemperate eating, this epic simile draws readers particular attention, I think. So how do you understand the attitude toward knowledge that's being introduced here? So I think, but licit and illicit knowledge, this idea that some knowledge we can do whatever with and some knowledge is not good. I mean, Milton has talked about that a lot in Of Education and in Areopagitica about what good and bad knowledge, about how we get knowledge, how we digest it. And this idea of temperance, knowledge needs no less her temperance over appetite. So 
when Milton talks about eating as knowledge or eating as reading in Areopagitica, he says, wholesome meats to a vitiated stomach differ little or nothing from unwholesome and best books to a naughty mind are not unappliable to occasions of evil. Bad meats will scarce breed good nourishment in the healthiest concoction. But herein, the differences of bad books, that they to a discreet and judicious reader serve in many respects to discover, to confute, to forewarn, and to illustrate. So when I'm looking at this, knowledge is its food and needs no less her temperance over appetite to know in measure what the mind may well contain oppresses else with surfeit and soon turns wisdom to folly as nourishment to wind. When you're eating food or learning, some things you like, some things you don't. Some things make you feel good. Some things make you feel really sick. And you learn not to eat that stuff again, or you learn not to cook that for your friend. And I think kind of what he's saying here is you, you got to taste certain things, and then that's going to help you understand what kinds of knowledge you can and cannot have. It's important that Adam asks a lot of questions in these books, and particularly in eight that Raphael doesn't want to answer. But he's not mad that he's asking questions. That's a great point, right? Because yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. The big thing I want to talk about, honestly, is this idea of concoction and about the eating, because there's things you don't get to eat and there's things that you can ask to eat. Like sometimes I think about it and talked about it with my students in the U.S. They can't drink yet, but they could be at a dinner with their parents and ask, can I taste the wine? And then their parents might say no. Mm. Or their parents might say yes, but you can't take it out to your friend's house. And so there's that kind of like licit and illicit digestion happening there. Raphael allows him to ask questions, but he doesn't necessarily answer them. And sometimes he tells them to cool it back off. You don't get to know everything, but don't keep asking about that because it's not time for that yet. In some ways, I wonder if leaving that curiosity unstated is part of the reason that they fall. Eve's the one, she prepares the food, she makes the beverages, and she's there for books five, six, and seven. But then in book eight, she leaves the bower uh, when Adam dives into his questions about celestial bodies and the like. I always think it's weird that she leaves at that point. Mm-hmm. Since when they wake up earlier that day, she is asking about what happens at night. Mm. And they talk about like these other beings walk around us at night. And she seems pretty interested in it. Adam mm. answers with such confidence. And now... I know. He has <laughs> no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> so, okay, so... Let's let, let's take a step a back. I do want to return to Eve and Eve's leaving at this yeah. moment in the conversation, but I, I want to mm-hmm. return to you know licit knowledge, illicit knowledge. Raphael saying, you know, just leave certain things as they are at, at the moment. There's a passage <laughs> where this explicitly happens at Book Eight, Line Sixty Six. Um, Raphael says. To ask or search, I blame thee not, for heaven is as the book of God before thee set, wherein to read his wondrous works and learn his seasons, hours, or days, or months, or years, this to attain, whether heaven move or earth, imports not, if thou reckon right. The rest for man or angel, the great architect, did wisely to conceal, and not divulge his secrets to be scanned by them, who ought rather admire, or... If they list to try conjecture, 
he is fabric of the heavens hath left to their disputes, perhaps to move his laughter at their quaint opinions wide hereafter. I really like that idea that God's like, not going to tell you, you're not going to be able to figure it out. But that's after search, I blame thee not. Like, yeah, go ahead and ask. But God also did wisely conceal and not divulge his secrets to be scanned or you see to be read. And that's where I think we get this circular idea for Milton of like books, knowledge as food, which is digestion, Mm. which is concoction, which concoction isn't just a mixture, which is fun. Concoction is really related closely with desacralized transubstantiation that Raphael does when he eats human food and like turns it in his stomach into ambrosia. But concoction is essentially that process. So when you look up concoction in the OED, even before the like mixture we think of, first definition is a three-part digestive process that transforms or in my research translates food into nourishment and then into waste. Mm. And it's kind of like the secularized transubstantiation. So Milton with the bad books might serve the reader once digested, but good things also can be digested. But the important part here to me is the idea that there's three parts to it. You eat, you digest, where that concoction, like heat mixing, that's that part. And then you create waste, Mm. which I just think it's important to always talk about waste in every way we can. But say Adam asks a question and he listens to Raphael's answer. That's the first part. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks about it. That's the second part, right? He digests it. And then he tells Eve about it. And that's the waste part. That's the excretion of the knowledge. And and Milton uses this word again in Of Education, where he's talking about like their schedule, the, school, the boys' schedule at the perfect school. He says after they have lunch and do their music, also would not be inexpedient after meat to assist and cherish nature in their first concoction and set their minds back to study in good tune and satisfaction. So like they need to eat and then go like walk around and stare at some trees while they digest. And then they're going to be like ready to go back and do some more homework. This idea of three sets of concocting, bringing it in, digesting it and putting forth what you understand from the knowledge. And so when Raphael talks about different kinds of knowledge and about what they're allowed to know, what they're not allowed to know, it's fine to ask the question. Sometimes you're not going to get to taste the food, but then you can think about why. That description of concoction as a multi-part process makes me think anew about a reference that Adam makes in book eight to Raphael's lessons as warning and experience. And I've always read that, that line, it's it's line 190. I've always read that line as presenting mm-hmm. two possible modes of learning. But what you just said about concoction makes me think our warning and experience may be part of the same educational process for Milton, at least in Paradise Lost. I don't know, because I think experience is such a like, heavy term in Paradise Lost, mm. particularly in pre-lapsarian. Ma- they don't need experience. Like, they're just adults. Do you know what I mean? But they're also kind of children because they're innocent, right? But 
but they don't really have experience with anything. Like everything they do, they kind of already knew how to do, you know, they know how to garden. They know how to be in a relationship. They know like, well, that kind of has a process, but you know, they know how to like welcome an angel for lunch. I get nervous about it, but I, I feel like experience is a hard thing. And I think it's important that Adam says that because Adam is bumbling through it because he doesn't have any experiences. Right. But I think experience is really important in post-lapse area and learning. <clears throat> Milton says in Areopagitica, we know good by knowing bad. We know good by knowing evil. And that's experience. But Adam and Eve do not know evil. They can be told about it, but they don't know it. So they don't learn by experience. If for Milton, the way we learn, meaning post-lapsarian humanity, is through the acquisition of knowledge, the digestion of that knowledge, and the application of that knowledge, mm-hmm. is somehow pre-lapsarian education hamstrung because Adam and Eve can't fully experience what the warnings that they are given, they're just kind of told, but there's no way to process it, to digest right. it without falling. <laughs> well, and this is the thing I think that becomes like the biggest conversation, particularly with students who are newer to Paradise Lost. But honestly, you know, I mean, this is my life study and I am still very confused about whether or not prelapsarian Adam and Eve can learn. Mm. I mean, they mess it up. But the thing is, they do listen and they repeat it back and they know that, that Satan's hiding in the garden and they know that they're not supposed to eat the tree. Right. And they know if they're like hanging out together, that's less likely to happen. I mean, Satan doesn't even try it until they're not together. But there's a physical process of that learning, of that digestion. And there's no need for physical experience in paradise. Everything's just kind of there for them. And I think maybe that sets them up in a sense to fail. Like we challenge our students and that makes them learn, right? Right. You know, we don't just like tell them this is this stuff. All right, cool. Now you've passed the class because I told you. (laughs) We test them on it. They get tested. They have experience. They experience producing that third concoction, right? And my students produce their knowledge and the proof of their knowledge through podcasts, through video, through essays, through collaborative online blogs, through all sorts of different things. Adam and Eve, all they really have is conversation. Right. And this was one of the things, and now I'm, I'm kind of going off a little here and stop me if I'm too far, but in my research, one of the big things that I concentrated on is the pedagogue Roger Asham. He was the tutor to Queen Elizabeth, and he used this practice called double translation, which is where a student would be given like a little passage of Cicero in Latin and they would have to go away and translate it to English. And then they would give it to their tutor while they went and like ran around or did math or something. And then they'd come back and they'd have to translate it back into Latin. So it wasn't like what we're seeing in Paradise Lost or how learning happens in general, where there is some change and some interpretation by the translator. So there's the first concoction, getting the food in, is not the same as the third concoction, putting the knowledge out, because it's gone through your system. So then it becomes your knowledge and it changes a little bit. But double translation thought to like keep that all very rote so you would be regurgitating the exact same thing every time. Mm. Um, I think Milton, when he's bringing this in here and looking like particular, you know, in book eight, 
Adam tells his recollections of Eve's nativity, for example, and it is totally different than what Eve has said earlier. And so to me, that's where you see Milton saying, okay, yeah, I mean, people can learn and he can see stuff and he can report it, but it's different because he's a human being. And so he has opinions and he has values and he has certain things he's worried about. And Eve has a different personality from him. They're not robots, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where like Milton is always, always trying to pedagogically innovate. And I think that's what we're seeing here. But what I think makes it very difficult for us to understand is that prelapsarian learning is not through experience. And so how, how can we expect them to grow in a sense because they can't experience they're just listening? If I may indulge yeah. in the hubristic fantasy of projecting what Milton was thinking when writing Paradise Lost. I I think one reason why he returns again and again, both in Paradise Lost, but as you've pointed out, in his prose, in his drama, he returns time and again to Mm -hmm. this question of how do we learn? How do we know that we've acquired knowledge, that we've acquired it correctly, that we know how to apply it, right? Even with as you know, using our human reason to the fullest mm-hmm. extent possible, how do we know, pun intended, that we're applying that knowledge in the yeah. way that, that for Milton, the, the big question is that God would want us to, right? What I can't help thinking about with this topic is like in Georgia, we're going through a big, in the next couple of years, they want to do a big redesign of how first year writing works. And what are the learning outcomes supposed to be? And how do we measure those learning outcomes? And it just strikes me that as educators, this has been the question forever. How do we know we, they learned? I think that's Milton's thing. He's an educator. And he said, I mean, how do we know they learned? How do we know Adam and Eve learned? And I feel like God is like, well, let's try teaching. See if teaching works with Raphael, you know, versus law. And it doesn't work. So I'm not sure what we're saying about education. Do you know what I mean? Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'm going to pivot from your your point about uh, Georgia trying to develop, uh, to revamp writing curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, so very often the both, in my opinion, a strength and a weakness of a, whether it's a countywide or a statewide curriculum, is that it's trying to Mm -hmm. find... The, the one pedagogy that's going to work best for the greatest majority, you know, for the majority of learners. Yeah, very quantitatively. Exactly. But of course, yeah. you have, and, and we see this in book eight when Eve leaves, right? Learners right. learn that's best. That's not how she's in diff- interested in learning. Exactly. She wants to, you know, so she wants to learn from Adam because he mixes the verbal lesson with a, a tactile experience, right? Intermingling kisses is the way I think right. it's described. And so, as we know, there are uh, there's great diversity in the way people learn. A- and students with different styles and different abilities are going to view the content, digest it differently, and therefore, I think, in turn, when they demonstrate their knowledge, they're, they're, the output is going to be so varied and therefore richer as a result. Yeah. Adam is a really verbal learner. He needs to talk through it. And Eve, I don't think we see Eve so much like considering and learning as she is just like, she got it all of a sudden. In post-lapsarian Eden, spoilers, y'all, when they leave, 
in the last two books, and Michael is showing Adam, like, all right, here's all the future that's coming, just so that you know, just so you know how horrible everything will be. Eve goes to sleep, and when she wakes up, Adam's like, oh, I got some stuff to tell you. And she's like, no, I already know. Like, she learns in her sleep. And Mary does something kind of similar in Paradise Regained. She, like, connects with Jesus subliminally. So this issue of how gender works with, I mean, I think it is important to think biographically about how Milton treated his daughters. Mm. I mean, they were, they served as amanuenses, but at the same time, like he did not teach them what these languages meant that they were taking notes on. There's a certain amount of knowledge that I do think Milton thought should be hidden from women. I think that we, he is interested in different learning styles. And there's a reason that we've got this kind of subliminal learning through dreams, for example. Got Adam's learning through asking questions. We have the son seems to learn through observation. Satan learns <laughs> like a kid who keeps telling not to touch the stove. And then he's like, I'm just going to touch it. You know, <laughs> so you've got all these characters very dynamic that learn in really different ways. Um, and this is the only example, really, of traditional teaching. And I think it's so strange that Milton writes of education about school, and it seems like so focused on teaching. Mm. And yet the teacher in this epic that is showing the ways of God to man, like this is the Mac Daddy, the teacher the huge character is here for four out of 12 books. Totally failed. We're going to, again, reach back to Of Education and Areopagitica, in which Milton, mm-hmm. right, in Of Education, Milton pairs all kinds of book learning with all sorts of hands-on knowledge acquisition, right? If you're good, right. if you want to learn how to farm, well, you better get out there and work with an actual farmer. You want to learn how to ride a horse? Well, reading a manual on uh, equestrian skills isn't going to give you those skills. You have to get on the darn horse. And then in Areopagitica, he makes right. that point as well, as, as you already mentioned. You got to, you got to read as the um, title of this. You got to read everything. You got to read everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, Eve seems to be the superior learner, according to Milton's ideals. Right? She she does ab- right. well, absorb she and then apply two point Right? Yeah, and she she tries to apply what she's learned from Raphael here. She just. She needs a second attempt, which is exactly what Milton's God gives them. Eve hears Satan's argument in the next book, and she likes it better. Thinks it's a better argument. Yeah. You know, she is using her reason. Yeah. And her conclusion is that this is a better argument. Because yeah. he's not saying, well, there's some stuff you don't get to know. He's like, yeah, you can know everything. She's like, oh, all right, that sounds better. Yeah. You know? And, and just kind of, again completely bursting the bubble um, on on books nine and ten, when Adam and Eve are confronted by the mm-hmm. sun with their transgression, Adam goes on this long tirade, right, against Eve and how she messed up. And mm-hmm. Eve, Eve has learned her lesson and has yeah. a one-line answer, right? The serpent gave me the fruit yeah. and I ate it. 
she seems to have learned, yeah. and maybe that's because she has gone through these multiple stages of concoction of digestion, that Adam is one step behind maybe for a little while. Yeah. Well, and Eve has done what Milton says in Areopagitica. She's read both books, mm. you know, she's read the good book and she's read the bad book. And she's like, yeah, I did it. I have now learned, but she learns by experience. Adam, there is no experience before the fall. Do you know what I mean? Like they, so I am confused by this idea of when you were at um, book eight, line 190, that um, to warned or by experience taught, she learned. Like ex- experience, Adam, like there's no experience yet. But it's kind of has this premonition idea of like she's going to have some experiences. Yeah, I mean, I do think Eve is the better learner. But I also think the way she's presented, she is kind of that alternative student in a sense. She's that different learner. She's the learner that doesn't learn by the prescribed pedagogy of the time. Mm. Like Adam will do the entire Socratic thing, ask the questions, get the answers, repeat the answers back, prove his learning. And Eve is an alternative wants an alternative education. She wants an experiential education, right? I think we're seeing this kind of Milton's understanding of different kinds of students, perhaps. Adam does get that experiential lesson in the fall as well. And I want to, to demonstrate that. I Correct. want to go back to the passage. But he's that, resistant to the experience. You know what I mean? Yes. I want to go back to that passage where Adam is just praising Eve uh, to, to Raphael. Um, and I'm going I'm to read the passage in full because Adam refers so many times to knowledge, wisdom, mind, and uh, reason, right? That all important term for Milton. So yeah, this is 546. When I approach her loveliness, so absolute she seems, and in herself complete, so well to know her own that what she wills to do or say seems wisest, virtuous, discreetest, best. All higher knowledge in her presence falls degraded. Wisdom in discourse with her loses discountenanced, and like folly shows, authority and reason on her weight as one intended first, not after made occasionally. And to consummate all greatness of mind and nobleness their seat, build in her loveliest and create an awe about her as a guard angelic placed. Raphael, he's, he's not pleased with this encomium, right? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. Uh, the first, I mean, I think upon first reading of his response, there's some things that make, make it sound a little bit like he's like, whoa, now, this is the woman. She's below you, you know? But I'm not sure that's exactly what he's saying. The first, so the first thing I think is that Adam is a little bit falling into this idea of like idol worship. Like mm-hmm. Eve is not God. She is a human. And the other thing is, like, she doesn't, he's saying she doesn't know everything. And I think the big thing he's responding to that, uh, to me, is woof, is the most important, is that Adam says that authority and reason on her weight, no way. Yeah. That is not right. Yeah. That is the opposite of what we rely on and have to practice reason. And, and we are not the authority. God is the authority, right? I think that's where Raphael is like, yikes. And he says later, he says, what higher in her society thou findest attractive, human, rational, love still. And in loving thou dost well, in passion not. And I think passion here means more like in like overdoing it, getting too excited, like calm down. 
wherein true love consists not, love refines the thought and heart enlarges, hath his feet in reason and is judicious, is the scale by which to heavenly love thou mayest ascend, not sunk in carnal pleasure, for which cause among the beasts no mate for thee was found. So remembering that this is his help me, not his God, right? This right. is his partner. And loving her is great, but that love that they have makes them have better reason, makes them better. And this use of the word love refines, refinement, that brings us back to book five and Milton's ontology. They can refine themselves up to becoming like the angels, to becoming that scent out of the flower. And it's not like she's already there. Like they work together. You are you are a team, Adam. And it's so funny because when we met Eve already and she's talking about her nativity, she has such an opposite idea. She did not want to go be with Adam. She had to be told to go do that. And this is where I think experience doesn't really happen. Like Adam has had an experience of rejection, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't know it. He just thinks she's great, you know, <laughs> like, and, and Raphael's like, dude, why can you not learn? I think he's, this is maybe a moment where Raphael's like, oh, I don't know if this lesson has landed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and we clearly see that it has not right in book nine when we hear, no. <laughs> right, we hear Adam's thoughts and, and he thinks, well, I could obey God and lose Eve. Or I could keep Eve. Oh, I got to keep Eve, right? I mean, so he, I, I think you're exactly right. He has heard the warning yeah. here, but without the experience, the lesson doesn't land. And the other thing that I think is important is to think about the fact that he, that Adam has had experience, but he doesn't recognize it as such, and he doesn't seem to remember it. So, like, Eve remembers liking her own reflection better when she was born, right? Right. Thinking that she was more beautiful than Adam was. And she was like, I'm going to stay here and do some Ovidian stuff. And, and Adam goes and has to take her hand. And, and God has to tell her to turn around, you know. And then she will go with Adam. Adam seems to not remember that, that he had to try twice. Like he remembers it, but he doesn't seem to remember it as an experience wherein he learned something about Eve. That he learned that her the whole life was not him. Right. He doesn't seem to know that. And so it's funny because Eve then has experience. Eve makes choices and Adam doesn't seem to make any choices until Eve has eaten the fruit and is like, do you want some? That is interesting. And it makes me think in a new way about a line you you read a minute ago, uh, line 554, authority and reason on her weight. And for Milton and his contemporaries, anyone who would subjugate their own reason to the absolute authority of another human willingly enslaves themselves to a state of in a state of tyranny right so here adam who is supposed to be the leader is willingly not i mean he's subjugating himself in the most passive of ways and to the kind of government that milton just absolutely abhors Adam is not coming off very well in this conversation. <laughs> no. And then, of course, one of the really successful arguments that Satan makes to Eve is like, you could be the queen. She's like, yeah, that sounds good. But big warning here is like, oh, no, 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 no. Adam, you cannot just decide that because she's so pretty that you don't have to think, you know, you just follow her around. No, you have to think. 
uh, a lesson God, for the ages. Like, you know, God says in book three, I I made them, I made them sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. And Adam is just like jumping off cliffs. Like, stand up, dude. <laughs> and and you know, and Eve stands. She falls, but she's standing up when she falls. You know mm. what I mean? I mean, I'm just kind of making some beautiful metaphors here, but I, Eve is so confident and she's so interested and she's confident in making choices and she uses her sense of reason and she doesn't make the right choices. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, your, your, your metaphor, they seem to me deeply drawn from the text, right? Because when Eve falls, she falls by reaching and grasping for the fruit. Adam falls when he yeah. drops something. Right. He drops that yes. crown of flowers that he's making for Eve. And so, yes. you know, one, it, good. one, thank you. Well, you know, see, this is what collaboration does. Um, I know. Um, but I, I, I work. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a more positive spin that we might put on this relationship is through the lens of another of Milton's tracts, and that's the Doctrine of Discipline and Divorce, where Milton advocates for what we might refer to as companionate marriage, right? Where the husband and the wife are mm-hmm. partners, and they're not only partners in the domestic labor, they're not only partners in bed, but they are partners in conversation. And Milton says, look, if I can't talk with my wife, if I can't have an intelligent conversation with my wife, connection. I should be allowed to divorce her. She's not allowed to divorce him. I'm sorry? You know, I think if we go back to Genesis, we go back to Genesis, that, that God has made an helpmeet for mm-hmm. Adam, not a wife not a consort, although sometimes she is called a consort. Adam calls her, says consort and consort together at some point in this book. But she's a partner. And I think Adam doesn't quite get that. I wonder how much the idea of Adam not really understanding what a partner is has to do with the fact that he was created alone and existed alone. And Eve has always existed with another human. Mm. And so Eve is born collaboratively. Adam is made from the earth by himself. Eve is a collaborative effort of the sun's ability to, you know, create new creatures, but also collaboratively from Adam. So her existence is because of collaboration, because of partnerships. So she like knows what that is. Mm. And maybe he just doesn't get it. Right. I, I think we might bring that back to the their different learning styles, right? Adam's first experiences, it, it, relational experiences, are uneven dyadic relationship that is conversations with God. Right. I mean, Adam's entire existence is kind of Socratic until Eve comes. He is the traditional student who learns by rote and learns by repetition. So, speaking of, of learning by repetition and, and Adam's failures to to learn by repetition. Raphael's parting words in book eight are a repetition of his primary mission. So so here are the lines uh, starting at 633. Be strong, live happy and Mm -hmm. love. But first of all, him whom to love is to obey and keep his great commandment. Take heed lest passion sway thy judgment to do aught, which else free will would not admit. Stand fast, 
to stand or fall free in thine own arbitrament, meaning a decision or choice, it lies. This passage is like a greatest hits from book eight of what Raphael has been trying to communicate to Adam and Eve in books five, six, and seven, and then to Adam alone in book eight. It, it's essentially like it's at, if Raphael is writing a five-paragraph essay, he's doing the classic conclusion here where he's <laughs> repeating. The words in here that are really important are free will and stand. Do you see what I mean? And, yeah. and, and I think that when if students are listening, like finding places in Paradise Lost, in Paradise Regained, in Samson Agonistes, where people stand up. Yes. In Milton's sonnet. They, they also stand serve in. who stand and wait. They also stand, serve who stand and wait. He kind of subverts this idea of what Raphael, what the son, what God mean by standing. And also Satan in, in the book two, when he is looking over the dark, the dark abyss, he stood a while and pondered his voyage. Okay. He stood. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you because I have yeah. a thought on this. Okay. At the end of book two, when, when Satan is standing and, and looking, like at the end of book five with uh-huh. Abdiel, these right. moments of standing mm-hmm. are mo- also moments of, and, and then Eve in book nine, these are moments where... Right. where standing is movement with a velocity of zero, as the scholar Rachel Trubowitz has put it to me. So when you're standing, it's not a passive posture. These are moments of consideration. These are moments of decision making, right? Correct. And where Abdiel makes the the right decision. And ponders his voyage, yeah. Right. Satan makes the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. Eve depending on your point of view, <laughs> you know, makes the wrong right. decision technically, but in the long run for the rest of us, maybe the the, the better decision. But like the, these yeah. moments of standing are moments of profound... Deliberation. Co- de- yeah, deliberation of cognition, of, of feeling and thinking. Two things. Mm. Stand there, like thinking, considering, deliberating, and wait. So again, like, and that kind of, I think, brings us back to the idea that Adam can ask questions and be okay with the fact that he's not going to know everything. So he's, and wait. I really like the description you gave of Raphael's presence in books five, six, seven, and eight as having some kind of analogous relationship to the five paragraph essay. And here he is summarizing, hitting the highlights, reminding his audience, Adam in this case, but also us of the most important lessons. But of restating course- Restating the thesis. Right, restating the thesis. But of course, one thing that a more sophisticated essay will do is not only repeat, but give some sense of what comes next, right? Exactly. And Raphael doesn't do that. No, and I think that's the problem because I think that makes the lesson seem complete. Like, okay, lesson done. And I think by not creating further questions, further connections to larger issues or or, okay, so now that you know this, what kind of thing are you going to be interested to talk about with Eve later? Like, 
you know? Yeah. Um, and I think you asked me before where, how, why lessons fall short. Like, why does this not work? And why in the world would God send him to do this? You know, everybody's going to make choices and they get to make their own choices, but he also knows what those choices are going to be. And he knows this isn't going to work out. So like, what is the point of sending Raphael down? And, and I think in a sense, this is, if we go back to Raphael telling Adam, like that we have a limited capacity to understand this universe and God's designs, right? Like we are not God. Neither is Raphael. He is only an angel. He's not God. So he's not a perfect teacher. This thought occurred to me as you were speaking. Book nine opens with the poet speaker saying, now I must change my notes to tragic. As if to say, all right, we've done the epic thing. And now we're going to switch styles, right? I've tried teaching you in in this mode, and now I'm going to try teaching you in in a more dramatic mode. As if to acknowledge that the tools that God gave to Raphael are themselves limited. And the poet speaker, Mm -hmm. as a result of the fall, has access to more, a greater variety of teaching strategies, we might say, that in some ways, the poet speaker Mm -hmm. is the superior instructor as a result of being able not only to warn, but to speak to experience as well. Is that giving too much credit to literature, do you think, as a source of learning? (laughs) No. (laughs) Literature is the best source of learning. No, but I do think you have a point with this idea of changing modes. I mean, we start off with um, seeing Heavenly Muse, and then he, in book three, he's like, "Uh, let's let light take over for a while. We have the invocation to light. Now we have Urania come in, new invocation, and, and switching modes again to tragedy, as you say. You know, with Milton's talking about Paradise Lust, he's saying, like, we, we are fallen. We can't totally understand this whole thing because we're fallen. So I'm going to try to give you this information over and over again in different ways because hopefully some of it will land. <laughs> and I, I don't know. When I teach, sometimes I do that. I'll say things in three different ways so that it will land with everybody based on what best way of understanding is, right? And I think in some ways the reason he keeps like invoking the muse and changing styles is because he's trying to reach all of us with these knowledge pearls. I like that. Was there something that you wanted to bring up that we haven't had a chance to touch on? The only thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that Raphael's a seraphim because I think Mm -hmm. that's really important because he's the only one in the epic and because he's the teacher and that this idea and I seraphim appear in Isaiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6 line 6 then flew one of the seraphim unto me unto Isaiah having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar And he laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then then said I, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. 
and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears head and shut their eyes. They see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And I think this is interesting because, first of all, we have the live coal is like this combustion concoction power of learning. Mm. Also, the seraphim making Isaiah into a prophet by giving him that ability to concoct. And then Isaiah also kind of acting as Raphael or Raphael mimicking Isaiah with that, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Um, go and tell this people, right? Go and teach them. And they're not going to understand you, but you have to do it. Mm. And I think this passage is really important because I think this passage is how we get Raphael. Mm. Like, I think that's who this character is, is this, this passage, this idea of the teacher going to teach, even though we know that no one's going to listen to him, mm. but it's still got to go do it. As you point out, there's a biblical source for this idea of heat and digestive mm -hmm. kind of processes in learning, but also the way in which Raphael, like human prophets, goes to speak knowing that their lessons, however true, however valid, are not going to be as efficacious as they would wish, but they have to be spoken. Right. Less. And I think this fits with a lot of when, when we think about justice, sometimes you have to stand up and say, what is the just thing to say, even if you know it will not make a difference to your audience. Yeah, so I, th I think that, I, I mean, you know, Milton's doing a lot here with teaching, with learning, with, with communication, I think, is the big part. How do we communicate with each other? And why should we continue to communicate or to attempt to communicate, even if we don't believe we're being listened to? We should keep trying. Well, thank you again so much for, for taking the time and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for having me.